Welcome to the Accelerators Podcast. We're bringing you oncology news and views with guests from all over the field. The discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. The Accelerators is part of the Photon Media family of podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at photonmedia.org. All right. Welcome back to the Accelerators Podcast. This is the first episode of 2024. We have what, in my opinion, is probably one of our most exciting guests ever. Uh, I'll introduce myself. It's Matt Spraker from uh, Denver, Colorado. I'm a radiation oncologist. And then... Samuel Brake, uh, medical director at Lake Huron Medical Center in Port Huron, Michigan, and uh, also a medical director at Onco Health, a digital health company. And I'm uh, Michael Yunus. I'm the associate executive director for the American Board of Radiology for Radiation Oncology. And I'm also the Division Chief of Radiation Oncology at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining us. I think this is awesome. We're uh, very excited. You know, I think we kind of talked about before as we were planning this show that in the past, we've done a couple of discussions of sort of ABR stuff and things that have happened over the last couple of years. And then you're new in your position. And so this is awesome. We're getting, we're really excited. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome. Excited to talk with you guys. Can we can we just start first by kind of hearing a little about a little bit about you professionally or personally, whatever you'd like to share, just to get to kind of know you as a fellow radiation oncologist before we jump into the ABR stuff? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I'm uh, a sort of born and bred uh, New Englander. I wasn't here my whole life, but um, went to uh, high school outside of Boston, went to college up at Colby in Maine, um, and then uh, went to Tufts for med school. Uh, interestingly, out of, coming out of Tufts, I was actually um, looking to go into orthopedics and didn't match in ortho. So I uh, signed on to do an internship in general surgery and was lucky enough to have done some research with a radiation oncologist and said, huh, maybe that's a better way for me to go. And, uh, you know, it has the technology and uh, patient care. And I ended up scrambling into a spot at Tufts after a resident uh, changed uh, programs. So I ended up uh, going to residency at Tufts, and um, one of the uh, groups that would come in and teach us was the group in the practice where I am. So I got to know them very well, and uh, when a job opened up in this practice, I started here right after uh, training, and I've been here since 2004. So That's... It's, uh, it's, very, it's a circuitous route, but uh, it worked out well for me. I'm happy. You, and did you know about radiation oncology before the intern year? Like you- I had never done a rotation in radiation and only knew about it from one summer doing research with uh, with the radiation oncologist. That might be so, like the latest I've heard of someone kind of discovering discovering the field. That's great. We're happy to have you here. It's awesome. Yeah, it was it was kind of a lucky. Uh, you know, I I would I was asked to go back to Tufts to talk to the residents who didn't match for a few years to make sure they understood that life isn't over. You know, <laughs> things happen. <laughs> Fellow, fellow non-matcher myself. Excellent. There's a lot of us out there. <laughs> we um and and so and you're you're and right now you're serving in your role at the ABR and then you're also still working in clinic, right? Yeah. So I've been uh you know in the, this is, I'm in a private practice. There's five radiation oncologists out here in Springfield, Mass. We're all in one location. Um, at the uh, we're a very busy private practice. Well over 100 patients on average a day for Lenox. Uh, but uh, I've been volunteering with the ABR uh, for since 2013, and I was, you know, really sort of focused initially uh, with my volunteer work to, um, you know, try to, you know, learn about what what was behind the curtain, you know, how the sausage was made, and really give back to our field. Um, 
And, you know, I, I think I was like most people when I came out of my written and oral exams saying, oh, why did they ask all these questions? They were so irrelevant. And and you learn that there there are reasons for things. But, you know, I, I also realized that the only way to improve things is to participate and, and help fix the system uh, or, or, you know, steer it in the direction that you think uh, you really um, would benefit from mm-hmm. or the field would benefit from. So when the opportunity came to become more involved with the ABR, uh, you know, I gradually uh, was asked to take over as the uh, chair of the lymphoma uh, oral board committee, and I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, the uh, my success, uh, my predecessor announced that he was retiring, and I I had no uh, uh, belief that I would get this position. Um, you know, it was kind of uh, a, a shot in the dark, but. Um, uh, thankfully, I think enough people thought I had a good vision and worked well with people and and really work at, you know, I work as a liaison between our, all of our stakeholders in the, the radiation oncology community and the ABR. And that's, um, it's, it's really a, a, re- a really amazing, fun position because, uh, you know, I hear from all of all the stakeholders in the whole field. And, and although I don't really have a direct uh, decision-making capability, um, you know, I am the face of of the ABR for radiation oncology, uh, for good or bad. Yeah, and I, that's really cool, actually. And it's probably a message, I guess, to the listeners. We've had a couple stories like that where people felt like they weren't eligible for something they were going to apply for, and then they got it. And so I always tell people, just go ahead and apply. because you Yeah, it's the worst that can happen. Absolutely. Um, I, I do want to, so, so thanks for sharing all that. And, and, um, and so you did tell us before too, we can, I think just to praise your partners, they support you as having some protect, protected time outside of clinic to do this. You, you still, yeah, see okay. I, I think I couldn't ask for a better, uh, group of partners. I mean, we're, you know, we, we value, we've always valued, you know, uh, science-based care, you know, we want evidence, right. Um, but, uh, having, having a partnership that, uh, is not, uh, you know, focused on our views and, and real and realizes the benefit of having some national representation and, you know, sort of a, an eye on the, on the whole field. Um, it really, I think makes us better practitioners. You know, we can just pick up the phone and everybody knows us, you know, and which is great. You know, I mean, our field is pretty small, so you can pretty much do that anyway, but right. you know, it, it's, it does help to have the ABR behind your name sometimes, you know? <laughs> but you're so you're working on stuff for the ABR like kind of every week. It's sort of a at least a uh, like what do they call it an FTE and in, in oh yeah, it's, I, it definitely. I mean, you know, the part of the part of the deal is um, you know if I'm working on the ABR, I have the time for that. But if I'm not, I'm seeing patients and I'm full time employed. You know, so you know if I don't have any ABR meetings or any documents I'm working on or anything, then I'm seeing you know six consults a day and you know yeah. just busy busy radiation oncologist. Generalist, right? Uh, yeah, although, you know, as time has gone on, I'm more focused on, um, you know, lymphoma, head and neck, CNS, SRS, SBRT. I don't do any GYN. And I, you know, we we kind of all for, sort of uh, have subspecialties, but yeah, we all do a little of everything. Okay, cool. cool. Um, I wanted to start by talking about the oral boards. I kind of broke this up a little bit into the different uh, topics because they, they're a little bit separate. Um, and I wanted to start with that because really this is one where I got to be honest, I hear mostly positive things from like right. a large swath of of people. Um, and this is especially true kind of post-COVID when we were all like kind of wondering how things were going to go in the, in the new world, right? And so I have a couple friends that took boards in the last, I guess, like two to three years and very, very um, 
uh, lots of praise about their experience doing the virtual like board from home. Um, are there are there things internally that you feel like that the ABR feels like was a big win other than oh, just converting yeah. it to virtual, which is a big effort? But yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, the IT lift to develop a platform with nothing to start from that is so good and so efficient and allows us to make the exam virtually almost identical to the way it was in person. And that's just truly amazing. I mean, it, you know, think about think about it. You can't buy anything off the shelf to start from. This is totally uh, internally built, and it, it really is quite good. It's 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 so well done that you know, I this year we'll you know we we can actually focus in and watch an exam without anybody knowing that we're watching. I meaning me to make sure that there are no issues. Um, and it, it really is amazing. I mean, the, the way that they've done it, the uh, there are so many uh, little highlights that you don't realize you have to do, like being able to hand off control of imaging and contouring on an image and scrolling on images. Um, you know what what the examiner can see versus what the examinee can see. All that stuff is so so hard to do with so many people logging on at the same time from all over the country. And, you know, you think of the bandwidth, you think of the control systems, it's, it's truly amazing. Um, so that's, I mean, um, I just, you can't say enough about the IT lift on this. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've heard great things about the platform itself, uh, just like Matt said. You know, I during uh, COVID, I, I was kind of hammering ABR about this on Twitter a little bit. Um, it seemed that there was a lot of early resistance to the idea of virtual examination. And you know, I, I was aware that there was like a new testing facility somewhere like Texas or somewhere that was built. Um, it took a crisis for this to happen, right? It took a pandemic for this to happen. Um, and yeah. wh why do you think that is? Because this this is better. This is way better. Yeah, you know, I think uh, number one is inertia, right? Everyone knows the way it was done. And, and if it's not broken, why fix it? Um, but I, I do think that... Um, you know, we have some very unique needs in radiation oncology, and it wasn't clear that we were going to be able to do it remotely uh, long term. You know, I don't even I don't even know if initially when it was going to remote because of COVID that it was really and I, I wasn't part of the decision making or even in the process. But I don't know that it was looked at as, hey, this is going to be a long term or, or a long, you know, a permanent replacement. Uh, I know several of the boards, um, you know, not ABR, but several other boards that went virtual during COVID have gone back to in person because they weren't able to make it work as well. So I, I think, you know, we are lucky that we've got the process in place and it is so good, but I, by no means was it a an easy decision. Fair enough. I was wondering if, so what you did mention before, I, what I want to do is I actually want to link, you wrote about this on the ABR blog, I think, and I, we don't have to like rehash it. So I can just kind of link it and people can see that um, uh, the uh, all the benefits that were made with the IT. Um, you did mention though, that you now can sort of drop in on an exam, right? Where you can't really do that before. And I did well, have a question. Yeah. Sorry. If you want to clarify. Yeah, that. Well, I, I mean, you think, so one of the things we were trying to do was, was mimic the way that the in-person exams were done where you know, if you were a new examiner or if, you know, all of the examiners have to be monitored, you know, you have to have a way of assessing the quality of the examiner. It's easy when you're in a hotel room back in Louisville in the last year in Tucson, where you could just walk from room to room and stand in the doorway and watch the process and really look at the interactions and see how the examiner was responding to answers from the examinee. Mm -hmm. We had to have a way of doing that because otherwise, how do you, how do you, uh, 
teach or, or give feedback to an examiner on how to f- perform better. So to do that, you have to have a way of logging in. Now, the first year that we did it, um, it was a little bit hard to do because there were multiple different systems that were linked. You know, you had Zoom for, or WebEx for this, but the software was a separate software app. And you could see if someone was jumping into, uh, you wouldn't see their face, but you could see there, that there was an observer in there. Okay. And and even that was enough of a distraction that we, you know, they really worked to get rid of that distraction. So now you can't tell that I or a trustee is observing. And the point of the exer- observing is not to ex- observe the examinee, it's to observe the examiner. And, and we do give constant feedback to the, uh, to the examiners, um, but there's no discussion about the exam itself. That's not the point. The point is, look, you know, you were a little bit you know, your attitude was a little bit dismissive or you rolled your eyes or, or, or you said, yes, yes, yes. Instead of saying, okay, let's move on. So you're giving sort of a false sense of positivity so that all that kind of training, um, you, you have to have a way of assessing it and responding. Can we actually take a quick step back? And can you tell us a little bit about that training and how, like, if I'm a new examiner that mm-hmm. comes on with what you can share, I mean, how is it something that's just happening during the exam or is it a mixture of like they get a little meeting before that kind of, it, yeah. Yeah. So it's actually, it's something that is constantly being um, improved upon. So the, uh, the first decision that has to be made is who is going to be an examiner. We don't just arbitrarily say, oh, you did this much work, you've been here for this many years, you get to be an examiner. It is a selection that is determined by the chair of that committee. And as you know, we have eight committees um, or by a trustee. Uh, And, you know, once that decision has been made uh, there, they then will go through multiple sessions of going through all of the exam content for that exam to, to really to learn what is an appropriate response, what is a failing response. Um, how to lead a uh, an opportunity to save yourself, you know. So if someone's sort of veering off the path, the goal is not to catch people. The goal is to make sure that they're safe. So yeah. if someone says something, you say, "Are you sure that's really what you meant?" Or, or do you want to, you know, remember that they're, you know, they're whatever they have cardiac disease or whatever you want to say to lead them back a little bit and give them sort of a lifeline, right? I'm laughing a little bit because that that aspect is actually like it shows up in lore. Like, I mean, you you took the exams. You probably had heard or you, you learn to pick up on those cues, right? Because, you know, you said something wrong if they kind of try to lead you back to where you should be. Yeah, yeah. listen, it's, it's, an, it's a stressful event. I mean, we all know how stressful it is. And the idea is that we really are trying to be patient, minimize the stress um, and try to give the appropriate feedback, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you're talking to someone in there and they, every time you make a comment, they go, yep. Mm-hmm, uh-huh. Good, good, good. You think you're doing great. But if that's just their underlying space filling comment, mm-hmm. that's really not appropriate for the exam. You want people to say, and what we do is we, we say in the beginning of the exam, don't take an examiner's response saying, okay, yes. Okay. As a affirmation, that is really their cue to, they're hearing you and they're ready to move on to the next thing as you know as opposed to saying you got it right to add on to the uh, the the training so there is uh you know when when we're in when we've been in person in the past the first day there is always orientation training what makes a good exam what makes a bad exam um you know going virtual uh both in a hybrid approach or completely virtual it does change things because you you know you can do training virtually 
but you really want, it's the mentorship too. That's very important. It's not just, here's how you do it. Okay. Run off and play, right? It's here's how you do it. You're going to watch two exams. You're not going to participate. You're going to watch senior examiners. And then the senior examiners are going to watch you for two exams. Then you're going to get together and they're going to critique your exams. They're going to tell you, here's what you did right. Here's what you did wrong. And if necessary, we have the opportunity for you to observe more and other people and and we can observe you more. So mm-hmm. it's it's the first two are, you know, never have a we never have a new examiner um, come on that has never examined before in those first two sessions. They always have to observe seasoned examiners. And then we get that feedback of the early exams and really try to nail that, um, you know, minimizing stress, try to reduce problems. We, you know, and and we frankly, if we have someone that is a problem that isn't really doing well, we remove them. Yeah. We don't, they don't get to continue to examine. Yeah. Now, and I, actually, that's never happened in RO during the middle of an exam. Yeah. And examinees probably would have like no vision of that anyway, right? Because you only see no. the one you see and then early. Exactly. Guess, extra. But, um, and so my, so this was all, this is very helpful, by the way. And so has, has, um, has moving online like changed the way that you can evaluate and train uh, examiners? Uh, yes, um, absolutely. I mean, anytime you, uh, can, can do multiple remote ex- uh, meetings to, to discuss things and to talk gives you more of an opportunity than in person, right? I mean, you get, if you're in person for a day, you've got that day to do remote, you know, to do in-person training, but we, we can't have everyone in person. We just, there isn't a facility big enough for even all the examiners in person. Um, it, it just isn't possible. So even, even if with a hybrid approach, we're still doing the training remote, you know, uh, not the orientation and the mentoring that's been done in person. That may not go on forever. I mean, the virtual process is is clearly very successful. And if it turns out to be that's the only way that that we're going to be able to move forward, um, you still want to have that mentoring and that and that observation session and the the uh, the feedback. And so the observation, even though you've gone from, a, I guess, a hotel hallway with the little bell thing, like to to online Zoom or uh, I mean, whatever the proprietary platform is, um, that um, you're, you're still sort of eval- like the structure of how you evaluate the examiners is the same where it's observation of a random sample of their interactions and then you go off that. Uh, it, it is, but it's uh, I, I would say it's gotten much over the last couple of years, it's become much more um formulaic, you know, we have, we have a a much more, uh, I would say a bigger sample size, but we also have more of a structured assessment of the good and the bad. Um, I'm not going to say a scorecard, but because it really isn't, it's like, you know, make sure that, you know, these 10 points, you know, how are they doing on them? The other thing that we're working on, uh, the ABR is working on is also having, you know, we're, we're great at the content discussions, right? We can, we can say, oh, you were a little hard on uh, on that candidate on the answer. You know, maybe you could have been a little more gentle or something. But what about that personal interaction, facial expressions, body language, that kind of stuff? So we're actually working on how do we get non-physicians, non-radiation oncologists to be able to observe and rate all the other behavioral stuff and, and ha- independently, right? And so that's sort of a process that's undergoing development right now. Because really, it's not always, I mean, the major issues, of course, are the clinical stuff, right? But it's, there's also the, you, you know, you, you're, you're giving a perception of your persona and you're, you know, they're feeding off of your stress and, and your body language. But, um, and, and that's something that we want to be able to sort of 
tackle as well. So it, it, this is not stagnant by any means. This is constantly evolving, constantly trying to improve the quality and the safety and the uh, validity of this exam. It's actually interesting that you say that. And it's reassuring too, because I think I either put it in my notes. Oh yeah, I did actually write this down. Maybe I just thought it, I never know. But but basically it's like, I, I did notice that my examiners were a little bit variable in, in kind of how they acted towards me. And, and, and I know that that adds to like a little bit of stress of the exam or a component of it. And so to hear that um, there's now, there, there's sort of effort being put into evaluating those parts versus just the content related questions, that, that makes a lot of sense. And is reassuring. Like, uh, you know, I my experience with the oral exam was, you know, uh, unfortunately a little bit unpleasant. I had to make a return trip for one section, and it was different back then. It was in person. Uh, one thing I got to compliment you guys on is it sounds like there's two examiners, or one is re- one is witnessing while the uh, while the exam's occurring with while the oral exam's occurring. I can tell you what happened. I mean, I I I, I conditioned breast. I uh, was asked to treat the axilla, I said, all right, well, I contour the level one, two, three nodes, and I make sure it's getting an appropriate dose. And the examiner, I can tell you, it's Sloan Kettering, Barrel McCormick, says, nope, here's here's an x-ray, right. Yeah, so, so I'll, yeah, I mean, that's not the first time nor the last time we'll hear this, um, but what I'm going to tell you is that when we all went through this, it was a little bit different. Uh, actually, it was a lot different. Uh, you know, when I first started as an oral examiner, there was a binder of cases and and you would go through them each day and you would pick the cases that you were going to give for that morning or afternoon session. But there was no structure to um, a mandate saying you had to do these questions this session, these questions that session. Um, and there were a lot of sort of older cases in that grouping and some of them hadn't been updated yet to sort of modern techniques. Um, But what ended up happening was that you would get a favorite case that maybe you used three, four times throughout the course of the exam, uh, or some cases you just didn't like the flow of them, so you never used them. So that's all gone now. Um, So now it's all digital, right? But it's also very structured. These are the cases in the morning. We're all going to agree with how are those cases being presented? What is an appropriate response? What is an unacceptable response? These are the cases we're going to give in the afternoon. These are the cases tomorrow. There's no overlap. And you have to do those, you know, you that's the book of cases you have for that session. You don't have to get to all of them, but that's the available cases. No more, no less. That's what you have for that session. The benefit of that is that you can really structure the, the details about what is, what's the point of this test? You know, that exam, it's not, can you draw on a three field? It's, can you treat appropriately, right? And whatever technique you use, as long as the committee that is evaluating that, or, you know, that group feels that that's something you ought to be able to do, there's going to be very, very validation that that is appropriate. So I, you know, I know nothing about your grade, your scores or anything else, but what I can tell you is that nowadays, um, I don't think that that would be a reasonable it's a you know a failing offense uh, to not know how to do a a uh, you know a setup on a on a film. Well, it it, it goes to like biases between like you know something I, and not to get too technical, but something like an early stage glottic. Like many people for the last ten years are treating that with IMRT, right? Like right. ten years ago, 
there could be an examiner that says that's failing. You can't treat that with IMRT, right? Like, so what is appropriate? And the reason I'm getting to this is that the recalls are gone, right? Like the right. recall system is done. And I mean, yeah. whether it's done or not, I mean, the big centers, I have skepticism that they don't have recalls, but um, the smaller programs that don't have any recalls, you're, you're guessing, you're saying like, is this okay? Can I, can I say I, I don't do prostate brachy? Can I say that? Like, can I just move on to something else, another way to treat? And there isn't that much information. I've looked on the website, like for this kind of, a, this kind of knowledge for, especially for smaller programs. And I think it puts them at a disadvantage and I'm wondering what can be done or whether this is being addressed or whether it's not being can considered. I, can I actually ask a quick, let me just like, like add a little bit to that question. Cause this is actually a pretty important distinction um, in your a priori discussion. So per panel, right? So per group, for a disease site in the a priori discussion prior to the exam and what's going to be tested is an answer like IMRT is okay, brachy is okay. That part's discussed now. Yes. Yeah. And so that's like a huge change to me. And and I don't, I mean, I'm guessing this was relatively recent because I didn't take them that long ago and I was still in person, had the binder. And I was actually laughing inside because I got tripped up on the same exact question, but I was able to rescue myself and the examiner was like, oh, thank God, because it, I think it's a clear, like that question is just, it's just a, it's a, it's a semantics thing. But, but at the end of the day, I, I guess my, my question is, um, you know, similar, what you're talking about is that that needs to be defined a priori up front, but we're probably not going to move away from the fact that a panel of individuals is deciding what's appropriate. And I'm not sure that we can fix that in this discussion because that's like a massive structure. Yeah, yeah. it's not about fix, but is it being thought about that? Uh, like, are we being mindful? About it, that? It, yeah. So, I mean, let me give you two, two sort of points that I would, I would uh, add. The first is one of where to get the information. And, and this is really a, a distinction. The ABR is not deciding what is important to ask and what is relevant, right? These, the field is, right? The experts in our field are the ones that are determining what is an appropriate question to ask. And that's why we have experts on these committees creating the content and writing the questions. But then the, the, uh, the assessment of the actual exam is obviously done by your examiner. Now, the way the process works is that if you get a get a marginal fail or a fail, which is the, you know, 68 or 69, not on a case, but on the entire exam for that committee, for that, that category, right? Then say, say it's the breast committee. That committee, that category committee will, will meet and discuss every candidate that has a 68 or 69 and go through every single case. And if a case got a 68 or 69, you know, why? And if the other members of the committee say, you know what, I don't think that's a failing offense. I think that's reasonable based on so-and-so, or it's a regional, or it's a training, you know, that's how some people train it or do, and it's totally safe, then that that that, that question will not be a fail. Um, and okay. so there's that, that's the first level of sort of leveling the playing field, right? We want to have this exam be as fair and as equal and, and assess the things that we want to assess. The, the other, the next step of that is that, you know, not everybody's going to do great in every single exam, right? You're going to do, you might do really well in head and neck, really well in CNS and totally bomb, uh, you know, hemologic right. and, and lung, right? Well, if you, 
if you do really well in in a session in a section or really well in multiple sections, then you, you know you'd like some way for that to pull up your sort of marginal score in a different area. And that's actually what happens. So after each one of these category meetings is completed, that final score then goes to what's called the panel. And that's where all of your examiners for all eight exams will meet together and they'll discuss people that have, you know, a couple of, you know, one or two borderline fails. And if you did really well on the other exams, they're more likely to say, all right, well, you know, they clearly know their stuff. They, they were just a little weaker in here. Let's, we'll raise them. Now, if you blew it, you know, if you failed because it was dangerous, they're not going to raise the score, you know? Right. The, the idea is though that it's, there are multiple levels of standard setting to make sure that everybody gets an equal footing and the scores are validated by the entire committee. So I don't think we see a lot of the, my examiner just, you know, bomb me because they didn't like the way I drew something. That really just can't happen anymore. Now, um, I do you guys keep the recording for appeals? No. Um, no. So, so we we keep the recording um, until we know that there are no um, behavioral complaints, which has a limited window. Like, if you want to complain about a behavior issue, uh, then you know, we have it for that window, which I can't remember what the window is, but it's, you know, a couple of days, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Once that time period is done, those videos are gone. We, we don't go back and review videos to assess the scores, but the examiners have to take notes and write down why different questions got what score. And, and, and that's really important. I mean, the, you know, you have to be able to get your point across uh, in an exam, and we don't want to be questioning and double checking. You know, it's not our role to question or you know uh, someone's scoring, nor nor would it be appropriate. But we do want to make sure behavior is appropriate. Um, and if there are any allegations of cheating, we want to be able to assess that. That's that's one of the big concerns about going virtual. Was how do we how do we monitor this? How do we make sure that someone doesn't have a Bluetooth? you know, a headset in or someone squatting down under the table, feeding them answers. So there, there are all sorts of things that we do, you know, to try to minimize that. So if there, there's any question, then yes, we can monitor. And thankfully, we've not had any issues in radiation oncology at all. So, uh, so that hasn't been a problem. But yeah, we do. That's reason. That's reason. I, was just, I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah. That's reason. And I never thought that. that would be a that would be creative, I guess. But it sounds like you've you've protected the test against that possible way of, cheat, of cheating. <laughs> um, I, I, in the interest of time, I'm sure we could talk about this forever. But I do want to try to move to initial certification because this is going to be a big one. And and I'll just sort of say say outright that we're not going to like kind of rehash. 2018, but I went back to read a lot of the writing that was done for about a two-year period. There was a huge amount of writing from residents, educators in radiation oncology, the ABR executives, things like that. Um, and I just I, I thought we could kind of um, talk a little bit more specifically about that, and, and maybe we could actually start with something that you wrote, which is a lot more recent. This was in October 2023, the blog that you, that you publish which I appreciate, by the way. Um, and you talked about specifically like kind of making the tests more clinically relevant. This is specifically initial certification. So physics, rad bio, and then clinical boards prior to orals. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I try to be pretty open and, and transparent when I talk to people uh, about, you know, the, the, or, the written uh, exam or the initial certification. Um, 
you know, I'm sure we all remember coming out of those exams going, oh my God, there were so many questions that were totally irrelevant, right? Why are they asking me these things? And, you know, the problem is that there's so much more information now than there even was, you know, in 2004 when I took my orals. I mean, that the, the explosion of data is great. Um, the, the, the problem is that we have to sort of have a way of, of, of making sure that we're testing the basics in physics and biology that everyone needs to know to be able to build on and treat patients. But where do we draw the line? And that's a hard line to draw. Um, in clinical, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, you could, we could come up with questions that are so esoteric that only a specialist could know. Um, but is that really what we're trying to get at? What, what we want to do is make sure that we can assess, does, a, does this person know what a radiation oncologist needs to know at this level and have the appropriate foundation? Um, and, and to do that, we're kind of trying to minimize the number of memorize this percentage from a clinical trial. Now, there are going to be some you need to know. I mean, yeah. we're not saying it's you don't need to know it, but it really should be limited to those trials where that percentage is something you're going to be quoting on tumor board. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it should be something that you've got on the tip of your tip of your tongue because it's that important. Physics and biology is a little bit harder, right? Because it part of it's going to depend on who's teaching you your physics and bio. Part of it is just what's in the news cycle. You know, I mean, five years ago, how much immunotherapy was even you know, discussed. And now we have all these questions that we have to determine, you know, how does that interact? How, what, what's the sequencing? Do we know, you know, do we need to know the target of some of these, these drugs? Well, you need to know some of it because it may delay your radiation. It may alter your treatment. Now you don't have to know beyond that, right? You don't have to know the mechanics of the whole process, but you, you know, there are some of those things that occur in daily practice you do need to know. So the nice thing is that the the chairs and the trustees of physics, biology, and clinical have 100% bought into this, which means that as of the 2024 written exams, the initial certification for physics, bio, and clinical, we're going to start to see these changes. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. I don't expect people to come out of this exam going, whoa, it's a completely different exam. Now, there are some things that they're not going to see on the exam, but they're not going to really know that they used to be on there, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, internally, it, it is a, a significant change because we're asking every single question that's going on the exam, is this clinically relevant? And if the answer is no, then there's a push to get rid of them. Okay. And so, um, and, and so that makes a lot of sense of kind of how the questions might, might change. Um, do you, has there been any discussion, there was a lot of writing at this time about, <laughs> I found this kind of funny because it used to be one single test, right? So we had yeah. clinic, red bio physics on one test. Everyone complained. They wanted more flexibility. It got broken apart. Generation passes. None of us remembered. And then there was more arguing and wanting back to go to one, one test. It does remain that we are we are more tested than other ABMS specialties. And that's definitely true. Is there a discussion of this again? Or is everyone just kind of like, well, they should go talk to the elders because they all asked for multiple tests? No, no. So <laughs> frankly, the ABR doesn't care. Right. We, we don't care if it's all in one exam or three exams or two exams. As long as we're testing the, the information that needs to be tested, that's a decision. You know, we we listen to our to our stakeholders, which really at this for this was is Adrop, the program directors. They're the ones who requested splitting it in the past. But if they came to us now and said, hey, we want to do one exam, put all these questions in one exam. 
fine. But then that's, you know, I guarantee you half the people would say, wait, wait, I don't want one exam. I want three exams. I want time to study independently for each one. But it really, the ABR doesn't care, right? It's as long as we can examine the three subjects we need to examine. Yeah. And maybe you guys don't. Um, I think four is a lot. People are very surprised to learn that we have four exams. I mean, it it seems it's just like year after year. the the I'm one not, that's the one that stands out as unique is cancer biology. Could could that be dropped? I mean, is it, you know? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not suggesting know, it. I'm just asking. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a it's a very risky proposition to say that we don't need to know cancer biology, right? Um, you know, yes, I, I would argue that medical oncology needs to know more cancer biology. You know, I, I think they're undertrained on the cancer biology. Frankly, I think we know a lot more about it, uh, but. Um, that being said, you know, radiation and cancer biology is so important that you have to have a strong foundation in it. And even de-emphasizing cancer biology, you run the risk of having someone come out that can't explain why radiation is causing a side effect to a patient or why there's an interaction with a drug or why they're having a recall reaction or or, or anything like that. So I, I think, you know, in my mind, the question isn't, can we get rid of it? It's we need it to focus on the things that are most essential to our field, which is Wait, what I'm trying you, to steer. You know why recall happens? I still don't understand that. <laughs> One thing, you know, what's really interesting is when I, again, like going through all this reading, you know, it's quoted a couple of times, like going way back. I don't even know who to attribute it to, but there's this like quote out there that like radiation oncologists really need to understand cancer biology if we're going to be taken seriously among cancer centers. And I, and I I actually was wondering if like, if that was just like an assumption that was made a long time ago and maybe it wasn't so true, but what's really true is, is maybe that's changed today, right? Certainly cancer centers are very different today than they were 70 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, and so, so anyway, it's, it's kind of, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And, and I don't think we're going to be, I guess, dropping the biology test anytime soon, but it is a question that people will ask. When we should learn as foundational as uh, I, I 100% agree we should, whether it should be a high stakes exam, maybe is the more important question or whether we roll that into the clinical test. But I, I, I do, the vast majority of us are like me, you know, we, we work in towns in America, 40 miles from a big center, maybe. And nobody's asking about these mutations and things like that. Like we, we're just, we're doing our jobs. We're doing a good job. We're providing high quality radiation oncology care. And I don't even know the acronyms of these things that we looked at in radiology. I can't remember one of them in my head because I wanted to just make one up as an example, but I can't even come up with one. Um, and it, it is fundamental because we're, we are, I, I do wear it as a badge of honor that I know the chemo doses. Do I need to know them? You know, I always say, like my first year in practice, I was studying and learning the chemo doses. So I looked at my medical oncologist's notes and I was calculating the BSA and everything. And I saw that the guy was underdosing every head and neck patient. And I called him and said, Hey, uh, it looks like you're giving 10 milligrams per meter squared. Uh, we, don't we usually give 30 or 40, what, you know, whatever it was at that time? And so it did help me. I could say that was clinically important. That's not necessarily radiobiology, but it's a depth of detail of chemotherapy that we have that they do not have about radiation oncology or radiation. And I, I don't, I don't want to de-emphasize it either. But I don't know about the high stakes exam, and I'm not completely. You know, sold and I, on it. I totally hear you on that. Um, you know, and 
I'm going to be frank with you, and, and you know, nothing is off the table for discussion. We discuss all of this constantly, right? But there, um, without a, a substantive reason to take away an assessment that we have to keep our field as rigorous and safe and relevant as possible, it's hard to justify pulling back on that, right? The um, what I would say is again, focusing on what is clinically relevant is probably far more important than whether or not we get rid of an exam or not, right? I would rather increase the number of questions talking about, you know, um, normal tissue toxicities and, um, you know, the effect of oxygenation and all, you know, the things that we really think about on a day-to-day basis. And that's the direction that we're, we're taking with sort of removing some of the molecular and the Sell, you know, the actions of, of things that really are not germane to a practicing radiation oncologist at any level. Yeah, I mean, I knew neutron therapy way too much, too well. Like, why <laughs> did I know neutron therapy? Like, I, I still, you know, I think Wayne State might still have one in Washington, but it was so weird how in depth we went on neutron therapy. UW, man, come on, I went, that's where I train. You should, this is oh, like yeah. a, it's it's special to the show. Neutrons are special to the show. Um, I, th- that you know, it's a really good answer, Michael. And I think I think it's it's a fair point. And and, and it yeah. sounds like this is an ongoing effort. And so I think it's it's great. Yeah, I'll definitely link the blog where you talk all about that. You actually, I think in the blog you reference one of our friends, Jeff Reichman's article about like what we should be testing in physics. It was a fun little debate, all that all that stuff. And so that's a great effort. Um, and my, my last question just sort of for, about kind of content design is I, I sent or I linked to you this this article by Dan Golden about the tail wagging the dog and and the ABR is always kind of and they continue to be kind of saying they are not the ones that should weigh in on what should be tested and taught. Um, do, can you elaborate on that? It's It's a little surprising to me. I sort of feel like maybe they should. Yeah, so it is. It's a hard um, debate to have, right? And we're constantly approached by um, you know uh, different members of our uh, community saying, "Hey, we want to improve a blueprint, or write a study guide, or, or or do this or that." the The reality of it is, it would be you know sort of a monopoly if we created the test and the content that you have to know for the test. That that really is not. The role of the ABR. The role of the ABR is really to to ensure the safety and training of our constituents, right? And, and to do that, we have to take the expectations of all of the radiation oncology training programs in the country and sort of boil it down to what is appropriate to learn. Um, it, it, it's kind of hard to do that with uh, you know, with the clinical stuff, uh, actually, it's hard with physics and biology as well. But for clinical, with so many different practice patterns, so much different technology, how do you say what is appropriate and what is not? Um, so we have to leave it to the uh, you know Astros and the and the other uh, Acro and other committees uh, to determine what is considered appropriate to to memorize or to learn for you know, a resident at a given level. 
Is there is there an effort to be a little bit more collaborative? So let's just like let me give you an example. That's an aspirational example. I'm not expecting you to do this, but we have like you know on table adaptive radiotherapy is coming out. All of a sudden, contouring and organ at risk in real time is very important for a physician. Could actually harm people if you do that incorrectly. Um, we all learn this and discover that it's an issue. Um, is there now a mechanism where like Astro can tell you this is a big problem, and and you can imagine it would actually be very beneficial for the ABR to start testing it, right? Because so, so we, study. Yeah, yeah, we do even better than that, which is that um, we we have our teams that create the exams, that create the questions, that that de- you know design the content. Are teams of clinical representatives from all different areas. So some are program directors, some are chairmen, some are primary, you know, uh, you know, uh, private practice clinicians. Some are big academics, some are solo, you know, and and they are the ones coming in, creating the content, debating what is appropriate. And we have these blueprints, these these standardized uh, literal blueprints of what kinds of questions we want to add. And they're constantly being reevaluated, adapted, updated. Um, But that that level of expertise, that group is what is where that information is coming from. And a lot of them have positions, volunteer positions at Astro or Acro or ABMS or whatever, and they're bringing that expertise in as well as their expertise from wherever they are working to say, look, I think the, this is something we ought to be testing on. The I think what's really nice is that because it's not stagnant, because it changes every year and gets reassessed every year, intentionally, we're keeping it updated. So, so we, you know, we, we're going through these, uh, these blueprints again, uh, you know, we're going to start doing that in a, in a few months and we may find that, you know what, we no longer need to ask a question about a certain category of disease, you know, and, and, you know, frankly, we've done that in many areas and, um, you know, uh, we can't, but we're not going to post it online saying we're no longer asking questions about X, Y, or Z because it's, it's really coming from the programs and from the other uh, you know, experts with the specialized knowledge, which I don't have, right? I'm not a breast specialist. I'm not going to know what what's the key point that we need to to uh, to ask people in this in this blueprint. Yeah, we're not going to solve this now. You know, it's, there was talk about how to better address this and a lot of this writing that was going on. And I did notice that there was some slight updates to what ABR does post. But I understand that you can't explicitly put down in paper like what you're testing and what you're not testing kind of defeats the purpose of the test. But maybe that means that our other societies can work a little bit harder to enhance uh, communication of what they're telling you, right? Because presumably you're listening and then therefore they can just assume that it, that might be a change that's happening. Um, so, uh, so you know, I think with the last topic, we I, I, I did want to kind of probably focus on what what maybe most people thought we were going to talk more about, which is kind of just talking about transparency and communications between the ABR and examinees and, and sort of stakeholders, uh, just broadly speaking. Um, and and I do, um, I'm not going to, we talked about it in advance that we're not going to rehash 2018, partly because I think Jason does a really nice job of, of just informational episode that kind of explains what happened. We're pretty far away from it now. So if people wanted to go listen to that, they totally could. But I want to talk about like the way forward. And so um, one of the things that I think came up a lot when um, when there was discussions in 2018 was just there was an aberrant test, right? And so um, it was just different than usual. And so people had a lot of questions. There was 
a lot of anger. And this is actually becoming an issue in the modern era with social media where there's like outrage, right? And so um, one question I did have was just if the ABRs had internal discussions about how to kind of deal with that in in sort of a structured way. Like, is there sort of an outrage uh, response plan, so to speak? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of using yeah. it as a joke, but you know what I mean, right? I think it's it's just kind of learning how to handle these these sort of public uh, instances, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great point. Uh, you know, I think that you know you sort of have a crisis evaluation protocol, right? And there you go. That's a better word. Yeah, and, and so I think the the number one thing is try to avoid the crisis. So that's so my my hope is that by being more uh, being available, being transparent, being honest, and someone that people feel like they can trust, um, will hopefully lead to less of that. Right? Um, you're always going to have people that are unhappy. There's yeah. no, you're, you're never going to have a hundred percent of the people happy a hundred percent of the time. And, and that's not the goal, right? We do have a responsibility to our field, um, but with more open communication and transparency and with our constant scrutinizing the way that we score exams and our methods, you know, we think we have a really reliable instrument and um, the more that we put into the development of these processes and protocols, the less likely we're going to have an aberrant event. Um, so, you know, we, a few of the things we've done to sort of try to avoid that process again, are things like having more non-specialists developing the test. So more community practice, more program directors, more uh, generalists, we also have sort of disassociated test development from what's called the uh, uh, angoffing, right? So we, so the first thing that happens is we develop all these questions. Then we have a test assembly where the specialists put in the the questions that they think are the heart and soul of that that category of uh, of the blueprint, right? Then we have to figure out how do we score each question, and that's uh, you know the angoff, uh, which is the method that has been you know proven to be a standardized method of of scoring exams um but even that process now includes people that are never really volunteered before we're uh, we're getting people that are again private practice general practitioners people who haven't really been keeping up with the literature um in terms of the subspecialties in our field so they can say look would the minimally capable, you know, minimally competent person in residency get this right? Not would I get it right? Not would you get it right? But would that person and that that feeds into the the, the final scoring, right? So I think that by fixing and modifying a lot of these little pieces, the end product is going to be, you know, more reliable, but also um, a little bit less likely to incite the frustration we've seen in the past. Well, and actually, and I think, you know, you make a really good point that um, what I sorry, what I should say is that I think it's a good point that um, investing in strengthening that process could pay off because one of the if you really, you know, drill down and look at one of the issues that, you know, um, I would say that it, like in his little documentary piece, Jason does make a case to explain how the growing competitiveness of radiation oncology could subconsciously bias some of these scorers to, to you know, think that the 
person should have been a better test taker than they really were just because they were in a really competitive field. And so that should help by having like more, more generalists and things like that. Um, is there, do you, so I had always asked this and I just, I think transparency is a good thing. Is there a reason that these people aren't listed anywhere? I mean, it, like it, I always wondered, I think in our field in general, there's a lot of places where people do volunteer efforts and they might, um, it might be nice to show that they're doing those efforts and we choose not to. And I don't always understand why. So with this particular instance, is there a reason? No. And, and in fact, uh, that's a great question. And one that I'm bringing up at our board meeting, (laughs) because I do think, I I think that that not only is it uh, in appreciation to people who are volunteering their time, uh, but you know, they get the, they need to get the credit for it. Right. We, we, you know, this is not a, um, a, a, you don't get a lot of, you know, uh, positive um, benefits from volunteering other than making your field better and, yeah. and passing it forward. Um, you know, you get to meet some great people and the staff in the ABR and the leadership and all the volunteers are wonderful. I love working with them. But as a volunteer, you know, you need, it's nice to get that on the, on the CV. It's nice to get that credit. And um, so the, no, there's no reason why, uh, why they wouldn't, uh, why we wouldn't have a list on the website and pretty much everyone's proud of their volunteerism. So I don't think it's ever actually been considered. So it was yeah, well, a and, question. Well, I mean, and you, I mean, I think everyone knows us intuitively, right? Like it's just easy to be like super angry at this like shadowy organization that has no face on it. Whereas like, yeah. if you just know, it's like these people that you know well, and it happens to be someone. And and I think it just makes, it takes the intention piece away where certainly there could be mistakes made, but like, it's not always like malintent, I think. And, and that's right. it's yeah. when it's not an anonymous group. So I was just kind of wondering that. Um, well, I think that's a great point. I really appreciate that. And then, and then I know that there was like this discussion in the, in the peer reviewed literature about the pass rate, right? And so there was this discussion about whether or not there's a set pass rate that was definitively, it wasn't, it wasn't you personally, but the ABR did publish and say that there's no set pass rate. And then, and then the second question I have about whether or not there is a set one um, is, uh, even if there's no set one, do you feel like the failure rate is too high? That's been floated by some education experts in our field. So, you know, you're right. There is no set pass rate. It's totally set by the Angoff, which is set by our peers in our field. So obviously the selection of who those peers are will influence what the pass rate is. So hopefully by having a, you know, more sort of open uh, selection of who is doing the Angoffing will will really bear fruit in the in the coming uh, years as we sort of see the you know, results of that. I don't know what it's going to do. I mean, it may raise the pass rate, it may lower it. Who knows? But we're we don't we're not bothered by the ninety percent pass rate or or anything. And from the point of view of the examinees or or the profession, ninety you know the ten percent fail rate might might be bad. But from the perspective of patients and other professionals, maybe they think. 10% is too lenient to fail. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, and that's the problem is that it's more valuable to patients and practitioners if the results of the exam mean something. I mean, if everybody gets 100%, which they certainly can, you know, everybody could pass. But how rigorous is the exam if everyone gets every question right? You know, so, so there is a, there is a bit of a understanding that it is still an exam that you have to have information that is tested. That being said, if the Angoff, if the passing rate is set by the Angoff and everyone passes, then it's 100%. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is what it is. We don't, we're not going to go back and change that score and say, 
you know, the Anglophers were wrong. You know, that's that's why the group is doing this difficult task. No, I think that's helpful to kind of clear up how it's done. And then with regard to the failure rate being too high or low, I think you make a really good point that it kind of depends who you ask with so many, so many things in medicine, right? It's like, it depends who you ask. And, and yeah, and, and I think the point that was being made in the publication was that like, that it's an enriched group that should be a very good group at test taking because they're that far along in medical education. And if things are being trained well, then, you know, that maybe is too high, but, but you, you know, you made points about maybe that's not, and that makes sense. So I wanted to shift a little bit and just ask about about the the costs, right? And so I know that people can go look up the the forms and things like that because it is a nonprofit. But if I'm just if I'm just asking you as like someone who I think um, probably residents don't realize that they're sort of paid for by their programs. I think in most of them, and maybe people can correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't really feel the cost of the ABR when you're a resident, but um, you feel it a little bit as an attending. And then now I'm in like a community job where I actually pay it and get reimbursed. So I really feel it because it comes out of my pocket. Um, is Can you, so right now I think it's 340 a year for, for myself. I think I'm about to renew it. Don't, I might be. Just did today. Can you speak to, to where, um, to like where that money goes and like kind of how it's. Yeah, absolutely. It? Yeah. So, yeah. So the ABR is a nonprofit and, and we operate at a loss every year. So there's no, you know, we're not rolling in the cash, right? There are 110 staff members. So personnel is the obviously the big, biggest expense. There were one-time expenses, right? When you're upgrading software, when you're writing software for like, you know, the uh, the, the oral exam. Um, and we keep, keep the expenses as low as possible, given all of these programs we have to administer. I mean, don't forget, we've got under the ABR, we have diagnostic radiology, interventional radiology, physics, and, bio, and uh, radiation oncology. And all of these fields have multiple exams. They have multiple um, exam administrations. I mean, we have two oral exam sessions now. You know, back in the day, we had one, right? Now we have two, uh, but we also have all of these other processes, the OLA, the continuing certification exam. uh, And we need the committee members and the volunteers to be able to do that, which means that we have to be able to afford to bring them together virtually or in person to do all this work. I, I think the amazing thing, frankly, is that we haven't raised fees since 2016, even as all of our costs have risen and all the other uh, you know, um, board boards out there have raised rates. So I, I give a lot of credit to the Board of Governors um, keeping the costs contained, but still producing better and more uh, information and, and data than we ever have before. So I uh, you know, personally, I'm proud that that's only 340. It could have been, it could be, you know, well over 400 at this point. Do you think, um, do you, it, can, am I able to ask your opinion about competition of boards? I, I can cut this if you want me to, but no, that's fine. You think, that's fine. Um, something I've been sort of vocal about in general, and and really it's due to just me me reading some, some people that create content around this, that there is some conflict of interest in medicine and there's really no competition among boards. Um, during this whole MOC thing, which we will talk about in a separate session, um, I, I, you know, I did ask my own job, can I go look at this other board? It's half the price. They're giving me the same service. And they actually said no. And the reason why is because my surgeons have residency programs. I don't. But because of that, I have to use ACGME. How do you feel about that? Are you able to speak to that at all? Just your personal opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the problem is we don't, I, I don't know enough about what these other boards offer or require and but i do know that the abr has 
you know, pretty strict requirements and produces a very good qualified uh, physician at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, and, and the ABR can hang our hat on the fact that everyone out there with our certification has met the criteria to practice and practice safely. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have that, um, you know, I mean, anyone can offer you a, 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 you know, credentialing. I mean, anyone can offer you a license, right? But that doesn't mean anything unless it's backed by the history and the, the, um, the data that shows that you have fulfilled the requirements to practice safely based on a large select section of your peers. Now, whether the ABMS or, or anyone else should endorse or support another board, that would be totally up to them based on their assessment of the pe- people coming out of it and then the rigor of the training, right? And the rigor of the exams. But I'm not in a position to to comment on that because I don't know the rigor. Right. No, and I think it's what's funny too is like it just to your like to the ABR's defense. I mean, what the other board, this is the NBPAS, the one that was like floating around as as people should be considering over this MOC thing. They sort of like leech off, <laughs> they sort of like they take your initial cert and they just continue to maintain it for you, which is great for me as like a customer, but like you know, they they don't do the work of initial certification. And and I and I do want to point out because I have been a critic of this that what you describe is would be horrible, right? Because we we can rightfully ask Jason and I talked a bit about this on the accelerators like a couple of years ago. We could ask like, do we really need all this certification in 2024 when there's so many people looking at how we're doing? Um, but at the same time, if you have like this huge market of all these various boards and they're all garbage, then you're back to like 1910 where nobody's verifying, right? So I, yeah, so I guess it is a balance, and yeah, it is, and I and I don't know that anyone is going to solve that because you know nobody wants to pay fees nobody wants to have more tests but you know and i know we're not going to be getting into the moc or or uh or ola right now but the reality of it is is, is that the abr has done so much to make it as little have as little impact on your day-to-day life as possible i mean I, I took the maintenance certification exam back when it was the maintenance certification exam, and I had to study. I studied for a few weeks because I don't treat all disease sites, and and I was frankly pretty nervous. I you know I was I think it was my first year as a volunteer in the ABR, and I said, well, "What happens if I fail? How embarrassing would that be?" You know. <laughs> so I, I studied. I made sure that I passed, but I don't ever want to do that again. That was miserable. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to the ABR for, uh, for coming up with a process that is frankly pretty darn easy, you know, and, and, but still good, you know, good and validated. And, and it keeps, it makes sure that we keep up with the basic walking around knowledge we really should have. Yeah, no, it, it is true. And in fact, one of the biggest sources of disagreement, this is this is the one thing that among friends, I do feel like I'm kind of on an island because most British oncologists, like it is so easy. And that's true. I have no, no, like there's no criticism of, of how it's set up. It's just whether we need to do it at all. Right. So it's totally a separate, a separate uh, discussion. Certainly people can go watch the other discussions. ASCO is talking about this too. And, and, but we'll come back and we'll, we'll have a bigger discussion on it because I think it's a fascinating topic. And, and I think Absolutely. you have great thoughts there. Um, anything you want to share with the audience before we finish up here? Anything that we didn't get to that you feel like you want them to no, know? You know the, yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to to talk with you and to sort of be a um, you know a, a an honest and um, approachable person that people can uh, can can ask questions to. 
Um, I would will say that I, you know, I'm trying very hard to be available. I'm giving presentations, doing this podcast. I have another one that I'm doing with Pro. Um, we've talked about doing town halls, question and answers. I've, you know, done a, a talk at Astro, and uh, you know, I'll be at Acro. And the, you know, the the reality is, I want to be available, and and so everyone in the ABR does. We're, you know, the staff, the the leadership, everyone is available and there to answer questions. We are not a black box. We are not, you know, trying to hide behind our sign or anything. Uh, you know, realistically, whatever the field wants in terms of more communication I'm open to. I mean, if, if people want to have a monthly Q&A, that, uh, great, I'll do it. You know, you, you come up with a forum and ideas and let's find a way that makes it work. We don't want to, you know, it, the national meetings are hard because they're always, you're always competing with other more, probably more interesting sessions in the ABR, right? Um, but, uh, you know, doing something at another time i'm certainly open to this is great uh matt i really really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk and you know if people have questions and you want to do another session sort of question and answer i'd love to do it whatever whatever works to make sure that we um you know our field feels comfortable with the abr because uh, you know i am our field right i'm a radiation oncologist i'm practicing i i'm i live it uh, as much as i work in it yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I really appreciate you saying that. And I'm happy you got to articulate that because I really do think it's a great thing that you're doing. And I and I appreciate that you're willing to come on and kind of have these conversations. I think it's really important and it's going to be a way, um, really, especially in this like kind of new world where, you know, we have Twitter and all the, you know, all the different ways that we can talk. I think it's really important that we just have good, uh, thorough conversations about these nuanced things. And so I, I really appreciate you coming on. And absolutely, I think, you know, if we want to do this again and, and keep the conversation open, absolutely, we'll be, we'll be open to it. Yeah. Yeah. Love um, to. Okay. Hot seat. Uh, so you went to Colby College in Maine. Um, Maine lobster rolls or Connecticut lobster rolls? Oh, Maine. No question. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I I don't know how you'd want the other way. I it's yeah. just too heavy. Is yeah, is Maine, Maine is Maine the the one that's not with mayo or what's the like the? It's a it's a light light mayo lemon and sometimes tarragon. And on it's the, it's cold on, right? on the on the hot dog bun cut open, you know. And, and it's served yeah. cold. Is that yeah? Okay. Well, you can do it yeah. cold or hot, but usually cold. Yeah, usually cold. Yeah, it's just like any time of the year, it's yeah. great. It's just it's the way to have it. Yeah. Like I was looking at your, there's uh, not too much celery. You can't have too much celery in there. <laughs> too much good. I was looking at your LinkedIn. Uh, you do some 3D printing. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh man, this is uh, this is one of my uh, my favorite topics. So um, yeah, so I got into doing some 3D printing for fun and and sort of got into thinking how can we do this in the clinic. And uh, so there's a company called Adaptive that uh, has software that lets you create boluses and 3D printed brachytherapy catheters or applicators with the catheter channels built in. And um, so I started off doing models like like this, like, a, you know, a larynx. Uh, you can't see it with my fog screen. But uh, so I do, uh, you know, I started off sort of with educational items where I would do, you know, print people's tumors and their anatomic location. And I had a couple of kids. I had a kid with a Wilms tumor and I gave him a hammer on his last day and he smashed it. And it was just, it is cathartic. Awesome. I want to do more of that kind of stuff. That was pretty cool. Um, yeah. But uh, then we, we had a, a couple of patients that couldn't lay down and we wanted to treat some big scalp lesions, you know, skin cancers and we were able to create a, a 3D applicator that 
just sat on her head and she could sit up and had HDR brachytherapy. And she lives about an hour and a half from here and at seven fractions, disease is gone, never had to lay down. So it was, it was wonderful. Um, now, actually, the number one thing I treat with 3D, the 3D printer is Dupatrins. Uh, you know how hard, I don't know if you've treated Dupatrins before, but uh, just getting the bolus to sit flat on the hand is is a, is hard. Uh, and it takes a long time sometimes for the therapist to set it up on a daily basis. So I bring them in, scan them, do a modulated 3D bolus, and it fits literally like a glove. Uh, and you make a mark for the isocenter. They lie down on the table it, it, with their arm typically above their head. And it's it just it's amazing. It takes no time to set up. Um, see, I think I've got one there. I can show you. Here, I'm gonna. I don't know if you can see this. Oh yeah, that is so cool. We gotta get some of these pictures. We can post them later too. Some of your three. Yeah, so that, it just that sort is... of. This isn't my hand, obviously, but yeah. So it yeah, just sits awesome. really nice. Um, I can sort of, certainly take some pictures for you later. But uh, yeah, so that's the kind of stuff that it, it's fun, and you know we've printed parts for, uh, you know, like I wanted to get a spacer for the HDR catheters that had numbers on them and we printed that. And so, you know, it's kind of like you come up with an idea and you just run with it. And the nice thing is you can sterilize this, uh, the resin and everything. So yeah, it's fun. Cool. That's cool. So, um, I, I had a thread I put out basically, like I went through like the New York times and I just Googled every radiation article, basically all of them are negative. So then these I saw these I saw that. that was a great that was great by the way. <laughs> <laughs> these Polish investigators went further and they went back to like 1980. Yeah. And essentially they tracked over time the positive and negative view of our field. Uh yeah, I think it's pretty clear there's a negative view. Uh there's a negative view from the New England Journal, there's a negative view from the mass media. Um uh, what do you think we can do? Like you you I consider like one of our leaders um in our field and what what do you think we can do about that? Have you guys talked yeah. about it or thought about it? It's a great question. Um, you know, it's hard to change a negative perception because, you know, people hear the term radiation and they think Chernobyl, they think nuclear bomb, you know, that that's not one that is going to be easily um, altered. Uh, I think the key thing is that what we really need to do is make sure that we educate our colleagues and other specialties about how important radiation is to cancer patients and and not just cancer patients but you know osteoarthritis and and uh you know and, and uh lederhose and 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 dupatrins and all meningiomas all these benign diseases that we can treat and when done safely we're not a, a uh you know as dangerous as even most of these chemos that they're giving right so i think we have to sort of change the perception, but it, I don't think that there's anything that any of us can do at large to change society's perception because the negative perceptions came from these huge, horrific events. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. It's, it's just, it's tough on the mind because like you get through patients and you're like, gosh, that wasn't so bad. It's like, no, it wasn't so bad. It's not so bad. Right. Tell your I mean, friends, tell your friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I also saw you, you've studied some medical informatics. Um, I, I have my opinion on this and I, I feel pretty strongly about it, but why should residents think about studying medical informatics or getting more interested in it in um, for their career? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, um, there are there are so many times that I lean on my knowledge of medical informatics to promote better care, uh, promote better communication, both with patients and with other physicians. Uh, 
but more than that, it's, you know, how do you, how do you fill a role in a practice or a hospital and make yourself more valuable, right? If you know clinical and you have the informatics side, you are like, you're going to be, you, you, you know, you can go anywhere and, and, and do anything, right? Because you've got two very unique skills. Um, not that, you, you know, you could, I'm not saying to use it to jump to other jobs, but, you know, I'm on committees at the hospital that are uh, prioritizing funds to go to different IT, uh, you know, uh, solutions. And I can weigh in and say, wait a minute, we have to spend all this money on this product, but why don't we just invest in this product we already have and build an interface, you know? And, and that, if you don't even know what those words mean, then how are you going to have a rational conversation? <laughs> yeah, you you would you become the C-suite's best friend. Uh, it yeah. really the, the the people that are uh, trained and or even not trained but have an interest in it are going to be very valuable to the hospital. We are mostly all hospital employees now. Not not all of us, but most of us. Um, you are a wine aficionado. Uh, I don't drink anymore, but uh, could you give me a Cabernet suggestion for my wife? Oh, uh, so I'm a chim- I love Chimney Rock. Uh, Chimney Rock. Yeah, Chimney Rock is great. Um, you know, uh, my my wife and I have dabbled around trying different things. I wouldn't call myself a. I mean, you know, the problem is if you have a wine cellar, you have to learn how to you know what you like about wine. Uh, and yeah. we bought this house and we have a wine cellar, and uh, uh, so I've collected wines and realized that in the beginning we knew nothing about wines and we had a bunch of junk. So, <laughs> so we have a lot of great cooking wines. Um, but, uh, now, now, you know, we know a bit more about it and enjoy it. Um, but yeah, I love Chimney Rock and, and used to, you know, love the Camus special select and the real heavy, meaty sort of, uh, you know, deep earthy, you know, yeah, those are, those are that's what my, my wife would enjoy that. Well, guys, this, this was really great. Thank you so much. Um, and it's been a great show. Uh, Thank you really so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked our show, please subscribe and leave us a rating. Also, head to photonmedia.org and check out the rest of our content. We hope you're having a great day and look forward to seeing you again soon.